Well, here we are in the middle of an actual hurricane going over us right now, Hurricane Isaac, and today we're going to be speaking on Isaac. So uh, kind of propitious there how that worked out. We did this sermon last week, and we got rained out after the first 10 minutes, so um, we're trying again this week. And we're going to start today with the 19th Psalm, a psalm that is absolutely wonderful when you want to contemplate the glory of God, such as in such a massive uh, event as a hurricane. The 19th Psalm, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and that firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and the words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of the heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, Yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Glorious Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to meet here, and we do ask that you would withhold the rain for uh, a short time while we have this service, that you will be glorified through it, and uh, whatever uh, we have today to uh, offer as a sermon and as praise and worship to you, we thank you for this wonderful storm which is coming because it's going to renew uh, life on the earth, it's going to give us rain that we need, and yet at the same time we would ask that you be merciful and uh, uh, gentle on the people who are in its path, and uh, just uh, may you be glorified through preserving life while at the same time showing your great display of uh, power and might. And uh, we just want to give you all the praise and the glory and the honor that you are due, you alone, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we have a... Uh, just a couple of uh, announcements here. I don't think I need to mention baptism. Everybody here, I believe, has been baptized, and uh, everybody here knows that I'm still looking for a church to preach at, so I, I uh, will leave that just for the people on the video today. And, uh, of course, uh, I would like to remember Paul and Elaine, who I remember every single week, uh, our missionaries to Japan. I'd like uh, you to remember them in your prayers as they do their service for Church on the Beach and the other churches which represent them, uh, which they represent. Uh, as they do their mission work in Japan. And um, I'd like to also acknowledge that there are a couple of uh, birthdays today. One is Paul, who is Paul and Elaine in Japan. It's his birthday, as is um, Rhoda, who used to attend church on the beach, and also Jim, who used to attend church on the beach. And all of them are having a, uh, a birthday today, and I'd like to just remember them. Uh, just wonderful people that have come in and out of our lives over the past few years. And so uh, thank the Lord for each one of them. And uh, one more thing that I would like to announce, which is very personal to me, 
is uh, not only do we have Isaac over us right now, and it will be here in the next 15 hours or so, is that my wife is in Okinawa. And right now she is in the eye of a storm which has 130 mile an hour sustained winds and the winds are reaching up to 160 some miles an hour. So um, I have no idea how she or her family is and uh, I just uh, would like anybody here to uh, remember them in prayer and uh, whoever is uh, watching on video will all be done by the time this service is uh, over, actually uh, by the time tomorrow morning comes. They have probably 12 hours of uh, real misery ahead of them. but. Uh, uh, I would just like uh, everybody here to remember that and to consider that. Now, what I'd like to do is I'd like to go ahead and do a weekly New Testament reading. Um, you think that I would just skip that because we uh, uh, really may be pressed for time today, but I don't want to skip that. And uh, it's something that I already read last week. Uh, we had to cancel the service, as I said, but uh, it'll be good refresher for them listening. And this is just Romans 5, 1 through 11, and I'll try not to talk too much, but maybe a couple comments. Therefore, Paul saying, therefore, speaking about everything that he's just spoken about in chapter 4. Therefore, having been justified by faith, once again, Paul brings this in. This is a, a continuous theme of his and a continuous theme throughout the Bible is that we are justified by faith and by faith alone. There's nothing else that justifies us in the sight of God because anything else other than faith is something that we are doing. And God created everything and we're a part of his creation. Therefore, we can't do anything to be justified in his sight except to have faith in what he does for us. Having faith, we uh, have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The faith that is acceptable to God is faith in what he does, and that means in the giving of his son, fulfilling the law on our behalf, giving his life up as a sacrifice of atonement, and that is what Paul is speaking about, justified through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Well, I assure you, my wife is learning perseverance right now in the middle of a uh, very large hurricane. And each one of us has trials and troubles that we'll talk about a little bit uh, during the sermon. But that is the point of tribulations and troubles, is to help us to grow in perseverance. And perseverance, that leads to character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Well, the Holy Spirit comes because Jesus Christ died, was resurrected, and ascended into heaven. So we have the Holy Spirit which is poured out in our hearts, but the point of the Holy Spirit is to teach us about Jesus Christ and to illuminate the scriptures to us. It's not an independent thing that's going on. It is something that is perfectly related to the work of Jesus Christ. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely a righteous man will die, uh, for, uh, for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What a wonderful gift that God has given us in Jesus Christ. We could not bail ourselves out of the pit that we're in, and yet God sent his son to do the work on our behalf. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He goes on to say, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. There's no wrath coming upon Christians who have called on Jesus Christ. We'll have troubles, we'll have trials, we'll have tribulations. We will be judged for our misactions, 
but we will never receive God's wrath. We are secure from that. And it says, and not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. We are reconciled to God because of what he did in his own son, Jesus Christ. It's a gift that we cannot pay for. We, can, we can't do anything for it. All we can do is receive it by faith. And thanks be to God for his wondrous gift that he has given us, which is his son, Jesus Christ. All right, real quickly, we'll read one more Psalm just to uh, get us in the mood for a sermon. And uh, then we'll get in today's, uh, into today's sermon. This is the 20th Psalm. To the chief musician, a Psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. May he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifice, Selah. May he grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill all your purpose. We will rejoice in your salvation and in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stand upright. Save, Lord. May the King answer us when we call. Amen. Lord, one more quick prayer, just to uh, thank you again for the chance to meet out here, even on this blustery day, and with just a few people to be here uh, to hear to today's sermon. We just want to offer this to you, and uh, may it be pleasing to your ears, and may you hear the prayers of our hearts. There are many things that are going on in our own lives, and with the storm coming over us, and with the storm over my wife, and uh, people in need, just be with your people, strengthen them, and we know you are with us, because you're a great and wonderful God, and you sent Jesus to die for us. How much more are we spared from wrath through what you have done? Thank you, God. We love you, and we praise you again. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, and uh, today is 26 August. I'm pulling out my uh, big metal piece to hold down the paper. So if you hear some clanking or if you see me moving around a little differently than normal, it's a very windy day out here and I don't want to have something blow over on me. So uh, it's 26 August and of course you know that I like to uh, give this day in history just prior to each sermon. Last week we had some really fun things which aren't included because the uh, video wasn't processed. We stopped early. But uh, we'll get to those in another year or two or whenever that day comes around again. But on 26 August in 55 BC, just 2,000 some, almost 2,000 years ago, Britain was invaded by Roman forces under Julius Caesar. It became the outward reach of the Roman Empire and uh, just an amazing feat that the Romans had conquered all of Europe and consolidated it. And um, we do know that at some point, and probably won't be far in the near future, there will again be a revived Roman Empire. And they will be the uh, point where the Antichrist comes into the world and afflicts Israel. We know all that from the book of uh, Revelation. But all of this is just kind of a repetition of history from way back in 55 BC. Then in 1498, Michelangelo was commissioned to make the Pieta. Now, if you don't know what the Pieta is, uh, I'm sure you've seen it. It's Mary holding her dead son, Jesus, after he was crucified. And it is one of the most moving statues ever carved. Um, some people aren't into uh, statues. They think it's idolatry or something. It's too Catholic-y or something. 
I disagree with that. That was there to honor a moment in history when uh, uh, Christ died. And uh, although it is probably not something that actually occurred where Jesus, uh, Mary held her son, the emotion is there. She certainly held her son in her heart. And what a moving thing to see. That was 1498 and uh, Michelangelo's Pieta. And then in 1842, the first fiscal year was established by the U.S. Congress, and it started on July the 1st. And, of course, through mismanagement and uh, making all kinds of uh, blunders, which our government is just great at, they have moved it from time to time until eventually it is October the 1st. And so uh, uh, eventually I have a feeling that they will have a uh, uh, first of the fiscal year two or three times every year because they just want to keep taxing us into poverty and distributing what we make to people that don't earn anything. But as it is right now, 1 October is our uh, fiscal year start. And then in 1945, the Japanese were given terms of surrender to be signed on the USS. Does anybody know the name of the ship? The Missouri. And why was the Missouri chosen? Does anybody know that? Because Harry Truman was from Missouri, and he wanted his state's flag battleship to uh, be the uh, center of attention there. And uh, so that is the case. And uh, when I traveled around the U.S. a couple years ago, I went to Harry Truman's house and it was about as big as a uh, postage stamp. He lived very modestly. He, uh, I believe, was the last president that didn't take anything from the government. When he left office, that was it. And uh, he was a very, very modest living person. Uh, if you walked into the house, you would think you were in just a, a I mean, just a, not a poor person, but very, very, very modest living. So anyway, he uh, was a, a great man. He was a Democrat. Uh, I don't know how Democrats were back then, but I know how they are now. So uh, I'm sure he wouldn't like to be tied to what the Democrat Party is uh, a part of nowadays. But anyway, that was the USS Missouri. And uh, one thing that I remember hearing about that particular signing ceremony was the uh, uh, bombers that flew overhead flew hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them overhead in a display of power as the signing was going on. And we kind of cheated in that because what they did is they had the bombers fly around in a circle about a 14-mile radius. And so they kept coming back and it made it seem like we had an unlimited amount of power when in fact it was the same planes flying over. But it was a real awesome display apparently of what was going on. And then in uh, 1957, one last thing we'll talk about here is the first Edsel. Uh, was made by Ford. It rolled out of the uh, uh, assembly line and it immediately fell apart. So there you go. That's uh, this day in history. Now that we're into the sermon, this is Genesis 17 verses 15 through 27. This is entitled, The Promised Son, A Time for Laughter. Now, before we get into the laughter part, I want to acknowledge that there are times that we have that occur in our own lives and we may wonder why God has allowed this to happen. Maybe a family member dies, maybe financial troubles wipe out our entire life savings, or maybe our home burns down, or our favorite animal dies, and we question, why is this happening? One of a million other bad things could occur. Something may happen to my wife today. I don't know that. And I may say, oh God, why has this happened? And it's okay to ask God why bad things have happened in our lives. But I have seen people get angry at God. I've seen people accuse God. I've seen people blame God. I've seen them walk away from the church. They've gone back to old and bad habits, and they continue to stray away from God when bad things happen, as if it is his fault. But one thing that we need to remember is that there is nothing that happens to us as individuals, nothing that is unique to us. It is something that all people have shared in. 
The ungodly have suffered. The ungodly have received God's blessings. God's people have suffered and God's people have received his blessings. And the people here at the church and the people on the video have suffered. They will suffer. They have received God's blessings and they will, they have received God's blessings and they will receive God's blessings. But even more than all of us as God's people, we have the ultimate example of both suffering and loss. And that is God's own son, Jesus Christ. He shared in our humanity. He was tempted in every way that we were, as the book of Hebrews says, but he was found without sin. And he went through exactly the same ordeals that each one of us went through. And some of them were far worse than we will ever see. And throughout the Bible, there is this thread which weaves God's people into a great plan to heal that which is broken, to right that which is wrong, and to replace sadness with joy. And today we are going to see another step in this unfolding plan and the thread which weaves together this beautiful tapestry of joy and of laughter. And that brings us to our text verse for today, which comes from the 126th Psalm. It's verses two and three. It says, then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue was singing. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Yes, the Lord has done great things for us as he did great things for Abraham, the man of faith, whose life was adorned with both joy and laughter. And so may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought for today is from a princess to the princess. There are three specific entities who are addressed in chapter seven of 17 of Genesis in relation to the covenant between God and Abraham. The first is God who is speaking of himself. We did this two sermons ago. It was verses four through eight. He says, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Avram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be your God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession and I will be their God. Those were two sermons ago. And then the last sermon we did was verses nine through 14. This is the second addressee of this covenant. It is God speaking to Abraham. And God said to Abraham, as for you. So we saw God saying, as for me. Now he's saying to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male in your generations, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now we come to today's sermon and the third person to be found as addressed by God in this particular covenant. 
It's specifically speaking of Sarai, Abraham's wife, and we see the details in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 17. Verse 15 says, Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Now Sarah is the third one addressed by God, of whom something is expected. In his statement about her, God changes her name from Sarai to Sarah. But when he does it, it is done through Abraham. As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Just as God works through Christ to meet with Christ's bride, which is the church, so he works through Abraham for the name to be changed. Now, over the years, feminists in particular have found fault with the Bible's use of family hierarchy and the submission of women to men. As a matter of fact, just this week, as I was driving in the car, I was listening to talk radio, and there was this one lady that came on and she said, they were talking about her. She said that she was so happy that she was free from the bonds of men. She had uh, children from several different men, and she said, my life is messy and it's disorganized, and uh, it's the way that I like it. And I can tell you, and this is not a, a given, but the chances of those children of her turning out normal are very slim. They will probably turn out losers because their mother is a loser and because she has failed to properly honor God by working in the way that he has ordained. Now, there are people, there are women that raise godly children because they're godly mothers. And there are men that raise godly children because they're godly fathers, even though they don't have a wife at home. But the general rule is that the family unit is what brings about uh, a, a stable society and a stable family. And when we look at how God developed the hierarchies and the purposes that they serve, we realize that this is the appropriate way to handle these things. One thing is for sure, whether people like the way that God has done these things and laid them out or not is irrelevant. These are the way that God has ordained them. People who want to pray, for example, outside of Jesus Christ are entitled to do so, and they do it all the time. We have Muslims to pray to God. We have Buddhists to pray to God. We've got all kinds of people around the world that say, oh God, when bad things happen. But their prayers are only wasted effort without Jesus Christ to mediate their prayers. The book of, I believe it's 1 Timothy, says there is one mediator between God and man, and it is the man, Christ Jesus. People that pray apart from Jesus Christ, their prayers just simply dissolve into the ether, and they are unheard by the ears of God. In the same way, by rejecting God, and the family hierarchy, which has been established by God, it inevitably leads to an unprofitable family life. This has been borne out throughout history, and it's being borne out right now in America. As America moves away from the traditional father-led family, which is established by God, it may appear on the surface to be freeing these women from some perceived bondage. But in the end, it only leads to disorder, societal breakdown, and a loss of morality. Now there is another thing about the changing of Sarai's name that I want to talk about before we move on. And that is that it is done in it exactly the same way as Abraham's name was changed, by adding a letter H. It's the letter He in Hebrew, but it's equivalent to RH. And actually in the case of Sarai, it is changing an I or a Yud in Hebrew to an H, all right? Now both of these names, Sarai and Sarah, actually mean the same thing. They both mean a princess. But in the case of Sarah, 
it has a much fuller meaning, like a, a noblewoman. It is a transition from a local meaning to a global meaning, or something that is very specific to something that is much more general. Sarai is like a princess, as if she's in a room with many, many princesses. But Sarah is like the princess. She is over all of the princesses and the mother of all the faithful who would come from her. Now, Sarah is noted specifically in the book of 1 Peter as being the epitome of the submissive woman whom God favors. Here's what Peter says about Sarah. Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. The significance of this letter H being added to both of their names, Avram to Avraham and Sarai to Sarah, is believed to associate these two more closely with the Lord himself. The letters of the divine name, Jehovah or Yahweh, are yud Hey vav Hey Y-H-V-H. In other words, there's two H's in this divine name. And by taking an H and adding it into their name, it is as if he's imparting to them a portion of his own nature. This then is an elevation of them beyond the earthly or the temporal realm to the spiritual realm. What God has done is he has conferred a special dignity on them by this addition. It is a way of pointing out in them his eternal power and Godhead as he works through them and through the messianic line, which will lead to Jesus. This notion is going to be borne out in the coming verses about circumcision towards the end of the sermon, when Abraham takes his entire household and circumcises them. So keep that in mind, that what is happening is actually a spiritual elevation, and I'll demonstrate that. Now, before we go on, I would like to assure each one of you and anybody who's listening by video that if you are in Christ Jesus, you have already moved from the temporal, the earthly realm, to the spiritual, the heavenly realm, just as they did. And this is absolutely certain because in the book of Ephesians, chapter two and verses four through seven, it says that in him, in Jesus Christ, you are already seated in the heavenly realms. And in the fulfillment of that, in the book of Revelation, God promises you a new name. I mentioned that a couple of sermons ago. Your name has already been selected and your destiny is already assured and you are already sitting in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus positionally because of your faith in what he has done. And that leads us to verse 16. And I will bless her, meaning Sarah, and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be from her. Now the Lord promises to bless Sarah and he says he will also give you a son by her. In other words, just as you have received, speaking to Abraham, a son through Hagar, you shall now receive a son from your wife, Sarah. But the son to be born will be the son of promise. This is now the fifth time in Genesis alone 
that we have seen God working through the second instead of the firstborn. This demonstrates, as I've said time and time again, the doctrine of divine election. We saw it when God accepted Abel's offering over Cain's. We saw it when Seth, the son of Adam, replaced his older brother. We saw it again when Noah's second son, Shem, replaced his older brother, Japheth. He was placed into the messianic line ahead of his brother. And then it happened again when Abraham replaced his older brother, Haran, who died back in Ur of the Chaldees. And this pattern is going to continue and it's gonna grow richly in the pages of the Bible. God is sovereignly choosing people and their circumstances which lead to the Messiah apart from birth order. This doctrine ultimately finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ who replaces Adam. That's specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where it says that the second man replaces the first man, Jesus replacing Adam. And then he also replaces Israel. In Exodus 4 verse 22, I believe it says, Israel is my firstborn son. Jesus is the true Israel. Israel is called the vine in the book of Ezekiel. Jesus says, I am the true vine. So he is replacing these, a spiritual over an earthly. As the Bible un continues to unfold, we're gonna see many, many more of these patterns and we will show in each one of them how the wonderful hand of God is upon time, is upon humanity, and upon every single variable which leads to and teaches us about Jesus Christ. In the promise of a son through Sarah, God says that she shall become nations, which means many groups of people, and that kings shall come from her. Through Sarah will come King Saul. He's the first king of Israel. After King Saul, we have the second king of Israel, King David, the great king of Israel, Israel's sweet psalmist, and then his son Solomon, the wise king of Israel. Later, we have King Josiah, the reforming king of Israel. And of course, we have King Ahab, the wicked king of Israel. All of these people are, and so many more are coming from Sarah, but ultimately from her also will come the king of kings, our Lord Jesus. The thing that is the very hardest for me to get my mind around in this particular idea of God working through time is that he is working through these people to bring about the incarnation of himself when he is going to unite in Mary's womb, in the stream of humanity. Time is something that keeps everything from happening at once. And God, who created time, is working in the stream of time to come to the point that has been in his mind since the, before the creation of the world. Everything that we are experiencing, everything, and everything that ever has been experienced or everything that ever will be experienced happens simultaneously in God's mind. And yet because of what he created, it can happen in a sequence in which we can participate in. And that is something that is just way too much for me to grasp, that God doesn't think the way that we do. And so in order for us to become a part of something that he can participate in, he creates time. It, it, it's simply amazing. Verse 17, then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Every single reasonable commentary that I read on this particular verse says the same thing, that Abraham's laughter was a laughter of joy. It was not a laughter of unbelief. And any commentary which says otherwise has been made by someone who does not understand the context the man 
or the supporting Bible passages which clearly identify Abraham's laughter as that of faith mixed with joy. So if you have a commentary in your Bible and it says something other than it's a laughter of faith, exit out of your Bible. It's not a good commentary. Here's what Paul says in Romans 4 about this exact instance. And not being weak in faith, he, meaning Abraham, did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old. That's exactly what we're talking about right now, this age, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Right back to Genesis 15, six, where Abraham was taken outside, told to look at the sky and count the stars if he could number them. And if he could, so be it. And Abraham believed God and credited to him for righteousness. He said, thus shall your descendants be. And this same theme is building all the way up to this point where Abraham falls on his face in a laughter of joy mixed with faith. And guess what? In John 8, 56, Jesus is probably referring to this very instance when he says these words to the leaders of Israel at the time. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and he was glad. Now after laughing, he falls on his face and he laughs. He has an internal question and people have misconstrued this as well. Here's what he said. Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old and shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Abraham, we've already shown from Romans 4, was a man of faith, and so his question is a rhetorical one. It's not a doubting one. And in fact, he is going to have many more children in the years ahead. So it is obvious that it is not speaking about ability, but rather what is reasonable. And this is absolutely certain because of his next words that he speaks to God. Here's what Abraham says. And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Abraham has a son. And despite how we look at how Ishmael was born in the modern world, it was a normal birth to Abraham. He was promised a son and the Lord gave him a son. And up to this point in time, Sarah has never been mentioned in the account. But now Ishmael is 13 years old and Abraham certainly loves this guy very, very much. So instead of going through this whole process again, he asks, why isn't Ishmael suitable for the task? But we need to know that God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. What God decides is right and it is perfect. But Abraham is thinking from a human perspective. Now, there is nothing wrong with him asking this question, making his request known to God, and it is a parent's duty to pray for their children, just as he's doing for Ishmael. He's asking that Ishmael be kept in the covenant and to have the grace of walking in front of God's presence in uprightness. But God determines the who and God determines the why. Ishmael will participate in the earthly blessings but it is Isaac, the son of promise, who will participate in both the temporal, the earthly blessings, and in the spiritual ones. And that leads us to our second thought today, which is the Lord brings laughter. Now, before I get into this point, I wanna note that the storm that is over our heads right now, which will be completely encompassing us in the next 12 to 14 hours, is called Isaac. And that is who we're speaking about in this particular sermon, is Isaac, Isaac. So it's kind of just, it's really a wonderful, propitious thing that this happened today. Verse 19, then God said, no, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son. Now, what I wanna do here is I wanna read several different translations and I wanna show you the difference 
in these translations of this one verse. I'll read the New King James Version again. Then God said, no, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son. The NIV says, then God said, yes, but Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son. The next translation says, and God said, nay, but Sarah, thy wife shall bear thee a son. The next one says, and God said, Sarah, thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed. Next one, God replied, no, your wife, Sarah, will give you a son. And finally, and God saith, Sarah, thy wife is certainly bearing a son to thee. The word in Hebrew is aval, and it can be translated in a variety of ways. This is what we would call translator's preference. Some say no, some say yes, but, and some say indeed or certainly. The reason for the differences is what the translators feel is being relayed. Now, people who stick to a single translation, such as King James Onlyism, not only get myopia, but they miss out on what could otherwise be the correct translation. And sometimes differences in translations can actually mean the exact same thing, but they stress a different point of view. In other words, yes, but can mean exactly the same thing as no in the ultimate sense, but it does it by stressing the immediate in one case and by showing the distinction at a later point. To support any translation of the Bible, the rest of the Bible needs to be taken in complete context. And this is something that you are never, ever going to get from a topical sermon preacher. I'm not diminishing topical sermon preachers. I've listened to a million topical sermons and I've learned all kinds of stuff. But unless you, who are listening to a topical sermon preacher week after week, are willing to read and study your Bible, you will never come to these precious insights that God really wants you to know and he really wants you to think through. Verse 19 continues, And you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. A son will come through Sarah and his name will be Yitzhak, which means laughter. It's the same word that describes exactly what Abraham did when he heard the news from God. He fell on his face and he broke out in laughter. Laughter is his name, Yitzhak. It is through this child of joy that the everlasting covenant of grace is going to continue. Just as the promise was made to Abraham, it is being transferred through this coming child. Ishmael will live in the presence of Abraham and in the presence of God, but only as a physical son lives in a physical world. To understand now both the renaming of Sarah and the selection of Isaac as the son of promise even before his birth, we need to go to the book of Galatians chapter 4 and see what Paul says there. This is a very important verse to understand what's happening in, today's, uh, in the context of today's verses. Here's what Paul says. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law. Now, what's happening? And I want to give you a little background here. Paul is writing to people that are being told by Judaizers, people that say that you need to observe the law of Moses in order to be saved. He's telling them, they've, they've come in, they've told these people that are already saved believers in Jesus Christ, they've already accepted him as Lord, they're saying you need to be circumcised in order to be saved. You need to follow the law of Moses in order to be saved. And Paul says, you who desire to be under the law, and he doesn't mean that literally, they're confused, and he's trying to use this almost as a, a tongue-in-cheek thing. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? In one of the most masterful strokes ever written from a pen, 
Paul takes the law to justify why we don't have to be under the law. Remember, the book of Genesis is part of the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, which are called the Torah or the Pentateuch. He is going to use the law to prove that we do not need to be under the law. Read it again. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, which is Hagar, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. Meaning, Abraham wanted a son. He went in, they couldn't have their own children, he and Sarah, so he went into his maidservant. They did the normal thing and out popped a baby. There was nothing unusual about what happened there. He says, and he of the free woman, meaning Isaac born from Sarah, through promise. Isaac hasn't even been conceived yet, and yet his name has been given, and he's been told that he is coming at a certain point in time. So this is a son of promise. It is not the usual way to have children, the way it was with Hagar. He goes in and he does his thing, out comes the baby. This is not usual. You will have a son and his name will be Isaac. That just doesn't happen. This is the son of promise. And now he says, which things are symbolic? If you're ever reading the Old Testament and you read a story like a donkey talking, or you read a story about Ruth and this wonderful love relationship with him and Boaz and all of this stuff going on, and you say to yourself, why is this in here? Why is there a story about Joseph being thrown into a prison? Paul says right here the reason why these stories are included. Which things are symbolic? They're here to teach us about something else. There's not a word, not a letter in the Old Testament in any of these stories that does not serve a greater purpose of showing how God is working in human history to teach us about his own son. These things are symbolic. For these are two covenants. Hagar, Sarah, Ishmael, Isaac. He says those are two covenants, all right? They're symbolic of this. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage. That's the law of Moses. That's Ishmael and Hagar. It's a picture of the law of Moses. It gives birth to bondage. We talked about that several sermons ago. The law is bondage, all right? Which is Hagar. He explicitly says it. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which is now and is in bondage with her children. All of the people, Paul is writing while the temple is still standing, the Jewish people are observing the law of Moses. He says that is bondage, and that corresponds with the law of Moses and with Hagar, all right? And then he says, but the Jerusalem above, meaning the church, is free, which is the mother of us all. That would be Sarah with her son Isaac. For it is written, then what does he do? He goes right back to the Old Testament. He goes, I believe, to the book of Isaiah, he says, rejoice, O barren, meaning Sarah, you who do not bear, meaning Sarah, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, meaning Sarah, for the desolate, meaning Sarah, has many more children than she who has a husband, meaning Hagar. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. The church, the believers in God and what he has done by faith, are many more than those who are in bondage under the law. Everything you're reading in the Old Testament is symbolic of something else, and that's why those stories are in there. And that's why I'm not just a New Testament preacher or a topical sermon preacher, but a preacher who wants to have you understand the entire context of what God is doing in human history, which includes the Old Testament stories. Verse 20, And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful 
and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. So as you can see, the yes, but of the NIV translators is not a bad choice from the previous verse after all. When Abraham asked that Ishmael would live before the Lord, he in fact would live before the Lord, and he would be blessed. Now I want to read you something that a guy from many, many eons ago named Bishop Thomas Newton says about this particular verse. Most interesting what he sees in it. It is somewhat wonderful and not to be foreseen by human sagacity, meaning the wisdom of man could never have foreseen what he's about to explain, that a man's whole posterity should so nearly resemble him and retain the same inclinations, the same habits, and the same customs throughout all ages. He's speaking about Ishmael and all of his descendants after him, who today are the Arab people. And he's saying that these people have all of the same customs and inclinations and everything, just as their father Ishmael did. He goes on, these are the only people besides the Jews who have subsisted as a distinct people from the beginning. And in some respects, they very much resemble each other. He's gonna make some points about how the Arabs resemble the Jews. First, the Arabs as well as the Jews are descended from Abraham and both boast of their descent from the father of the faithful. The Arabs call him Ibrahim, the Jews call him Abraham. They both descend from him and they both look to him as the father of their faith. The Arabs, secondly, the Arabs as well as the Jews are circumcised and both profess to have derived this ceremony from Abraham. Thirdly, the Arabs as well as the Jews had originally 12 patriarchs, which comes from the verse I just read, 12 princes shall come from you. 12 patriarchs who were princes or governors. Fourthly, the Arabs as well as the Jews marry among themselves and in their own tribes. And we certainly know that's true. As a matter of fact, the two that used to attend here church on the beach, Sergio and Rhoda, who moved recently, he's a Jew, she's an Arab, and it was so unusual in Israel for this to happen that the families didn't know how to handle it. They could not understand how they could be marrying out of their own clan. And it is so unusual that there was no precedent for it in Israel. They had to elope to Cyprus in order to get a marriage certificate. That's how relevant this is even to this day. Fifthly, the Arabs as well as the Jews are singular in several of their customs and are standing monuments to all ages of the exactness of the divine predictions and the veracity of scripture history. He's saying that the very lives that the Arabs are living today and the very lives that the Jews are living today and everything that happens to them in the world verifies scripture. It is a proof that scripture is true. He goes on, he says, we may with more confidence believe the particulars related of Abraham and Ishmael. We can read the story and, and be confident it's true when we see them verified in their posterity at this very day. This is having, as it were, ocular demonstration for our faith. In other words, we have faith in the Bible. This is God's word. And now we have something that we can actually say, I have seen God's word being fulfilled in human history. When the Jewish people were brought back to Israel on 14 May of 1948, that was ocular demonstration of God working and proving our faith. When they recaptured Jerusalem, on 7 June of 1967, that was ocular demonstration of our faith. Why? Because several thousand years earlier, Jerusalem fell 19 years after the original exile of the Jewish people. And what happened? 
from May 14th of 1948 until 7 June of 1967 was 19 years. And it was to the day, 19 years, based on when Jerusalem fell. 907,200 days earlier, 2,520 years or 360 day years, which are the prophetic year, to the day. And that is ocular demonstration of our faith. And he's saying that the Arabs do this as well as the Jews. We have every reason to believe the veracity of the Bible because of what's happening here. Verse 21, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. Despite the promised blessing to Ishmael, which has surely been fulfilled in an amazing degree, even in our lifetime, the covenant established in Abraham would likewise be established in Isaac through his wife, Sarah. This tells us with all certainty that the covenant is based on what is spiritual, not on what is physical, not on the earthly. This blessing is going to reach all the way down to the Messiah and then it's going to reach through him to every single one of us who through his shed blood are brought near to God and in whose presence we will dwell. As I said, we're already positionally seated in the heavenlies with Christ. We someday will dwell with him. But at the time of Abraham and even until now, this is not fully realized. And we're going to see that in the next verse, which is verse 22. Then he, God, finished talking with him and God went up from Abraham. This is what John Gill says about this verse. The highest enjoyments of God here are not lasting. Uninterrupted communion with him is reserved for another world. God finishes his discussion with Abraham in this highest enjoyment of fellowshipping directly with God. It's filled with laughter. It's filled with amazement. It comes to an end. And as a sign that what God said to him was ironclad, this verse says that God went up from him. The Lord who appeared to him here was not merely a human being. In this one chapter so far, he has been called Yahweh, he's been called God Almighty, and he's been called God. Now at other times in the Bible, Yahweh appears in a human manifestation of himself. And to leave no doubt in this great man's faith, he ascends visibly, just as he's going to do at several other times during the Old Testament, and just as he is going to do after the resurrection, when he's standing on the Mount of Olives with the disciples, it says he was taken up in a cloud and he visibly ascended. And that gave the apostles every single assurance that what he said was true. And they went out and they gave their lives in the furtherance of the gospel message. And that has been carried on for 2000 years. Absolute proof that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, that he did what he said he did, and that he is our very God of very gods. And that brings us to our third thought today, which is a sign in the flesh. Verse 23, so Abraham took Ishmael, his son, all who were born in his house and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day as God had said to him. Now, I want you to go back and remember, I think it was chapter 13 when they had the battle between Abraham and the four kings that came from the east. There were 318 fighting men in his house, and he certainly left plenty of fighting men behind to guard the camp. There were old men that were probably too old to fight, and there were young men that were too young to fight. So you figure there are probably a thousand or more men, and they all got circumcised at the same time, and that is a whole heap of foreskins. But I will tell you something, that 
after the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites, they were in the, the desert for 38.8 uh, years and they were at a year and two months at Mount Sinai. During that 40 years, they didn't circumcise anybody. And so when they went over the Jordan, there were over 600,000 Jewish men that needed to be circumcised. And they did that. And there were so many foreskins that they actually called the place Gibeoth Ha'araloth, which means the hill of foreskins. So kind of an amazing thing, but here we go. Over a thousand people all at one time being circumcised, probably over a thousand. Now this verse here is given specifically to demonstrate Abraham's obedience to the directive that was given back in Genesis uh, 17 verses 12 through 13. I read them earlier at the beginning of the sermon. It said this, every male child in your generations, he who was born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who was born in your house and he who was bought with your money must be circumcised. God gave that directive and the very next verse, after he ascends out of the presence of Abraham, that verse confirms that Abraham's obedience was noted. And it also confirms what I said earlier about Sarah's name change from Sarai to Sarah and Abraham's name change from Abraham to Abraham. The addition of this H was an elevation beyond the earthly, the temporal realm, to the heavenly realm or the spiritual realm. And this is proven because all of the people in Abraham's household were circumcised, but only Isaac who is yet to be born, and guess what? He isn't even conceived yet, is given the promise, and he's also given a name. So think this through with me. The promise was made to Abraham before he was circumcised, way, way back when he first entered the promised land and several more times it was made. And then when the promise was made concerning Isaac, it wasn't just before Abraham was circumcised, but it was even before Isaac was conceived. And because this is so, this promise must be a spiritual promise and that circumcision can play no part in the promise. And I got to tell you something, this is another absolute indication of something I said a sermon or two ago, that circumcision has absolutely no connection to infant baptism and that infant baptism is an unscriptural procedure. And this verse absolutely proves that. Later in the Bible, we we'll see that through Isaac, the promise will be again made to his son, who is Jacob, who his name is changed to Israel. Therefore, there is an earthly significance to the circumcision, but there is also a spiritual one, which applies only to those who are the elect of God. Anyone who can trace his lineage back to Abraham is a son of Abraham by birth, and billions of people do so, but only those who are of faith receive the nearness to God as adoption as sons of Abraham and adoption as of sons of God. And Paul makes this clear in Galatians chapter three, one verse he says, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. He makes that point and then he spends several chapters defending it. And it is something that each one of us need to remember every single day of our lives especially when we do something wrong. And if you're Charlie Garrett, you know you do something wrong almost every day. Or when we do something that we know will really, really, really upset God. And that's Charlie Garrett every single day. I need to remember this promise. He has made a promise, a spiritual promise of eternal life to all who believe in the work of Jesus Christ. If that promise is based on something that we do 
after we accept Jesus Christ, then it is not a spiritual promise. The idea that a person can lose their salvation based on something they do or that they fail to do after calling on him is so unbiblical that it's almost impossible to believe that people teach this, and yet they do in churches all over the world. Oh yeah, you can lose your salvation. None of you should ever, 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 ever fail to understand this precept. You can never lose the salvation that God has granted you, no matter what you do. Yes, you will lose your joy. Yes, you will lose your rewards, but you will never lose your salvation. God's love for you in Christ Jesus is unconditional. Just as his promise to Isaac was unconditional, even before he was born, even before he was conceived. Verse 24, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Now, Abraham was born in the year 2009, Anno Mundi, and therefore this circumcision occurred in the year 2108 from the creation of the world. If you want to know whether this was a painful process or not, I can assure you it was. The Bible says that at other times, adult males were circumcised, and three days later, they were still laying around in pain after it happening. For a 99-year-old man, ouch. That's all I can say about that. And there are several traditions as to who circumcised Abraham. One tradition, which I really like, is that Shem, the son of Noah, who is still alive, he's 549 years old at this time, circumcised Abraham. That's one tradition. Another tradition is that the lead servant in his household, Eliezer of Damascus, is the one that circumcised his master. And the third tradition is one I don't like at all. And I, a lot of people hold to this, is that Abraham circumcised himself. And if that is true, all I can say is double ouch. That's a painful process. Verse 25, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Now, for today's descendants of Ishmael, there's no specific age as to when they circumcise. Some do it at infancy. I mentioned this a couple sermons ago. Some do it when they're 13 in honor of Ishmael, and some of them do it at other ages. However, the covenant between God and his people, as we've seen over the past couple sermons, requires it to be done at the age of eight days of age. And for no other reason than this, the descendants of Ishmael who have not called on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are not only excluded from the spiritual blessings, but they are also excluded from the earthly blessings as well. The land of Israel belongs to a certain group of people and they follow this practice as was mandated by God to this day. Verse 26, that very same day, Abraham was circumcised and his son Ishmael and all the men of his house, born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. On that very same day that Abraham was instructed to perform the rite by God, he did so. There was no delaying, there was no contemplating, and there was no discussion. The rite instituted right here in Abraham would be performed again on the Son of God 1,895 years later when Jesus was eight days old. In his detailed account of the life of Jesus Christ, we read this in the book of Luke, chapter 2. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. 
As you can see, there's another son of promise. He was named before he was conceived. And you can see how God is working in time and in space to bring about his fulfillment in the pictures, which are symbolic of something coming in his own son. And God asked nothing of Abraham. He asked nothing of any of Abraham's descendants that he was not willing to perform in his own son. Abraham was obedient to the call and he performed it without delay. 1895 years later, Jesus Christ was also circumcised. Now this is our very last verse of the day and it almost begs the question for each one of us here. Have we been obedient to the call of Jesus Christ? And there are several parts to this. You know that if you want to be called a Christian, you need to actively call on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If you haven't done that, then you're not being obedient at all. But if you have, there are certain things that he expects of us. One is that we be baptized as an outward demonstration of the inward change which has been accomplished in us. The next thing that God would ask us to do is to read our Bible, to learn our Bible, and to be able to explain it to others. And this is not something that God would call optional. It is an act of obedience, just as Abraham's circumcision was an act of obedience. In this word, this holy Bible that God has given us, we find how to live properly and how to walk in a careful and in a holy manner as we live out our lives. Is this something that each person here is accomplishing in their own life right now? For those who haven't called on Jesus Christ, this is where obedience begins. You can't be obedient to God if you have not called on Jesus as Lord. It is where the circumcision not made with hands comes from. It is a circumcision of the heart which is performed by God. And I'd like to ask you for two minutes to explain that to you. The Bible says that we have sinned and that we are uncircumcised in our nature and in our hearts towards God. We are at rebellion with God and that we are fighting against God. We are actually at enmity with him. We are children of wrath by nature, according to the Bible. But the Bible says that God loved us enough to send his own son to live the life that we can't live and then to give that life up on a cross to pay for the debt that we owe God. And when we call on that great act that was accomplished by God and we say, I received that, I received his punishment that I deserve, God will restore us to a right relationship with him. The Bible says, if we call on the name of the Lord, we will be saved. And at that moment, God circumcises our hearts. He takes away the enmity, the fighting with him, and he seals us with the Holy Spirit, which is a promise. It is a guarantee that we will never, never, never be on God's bad side again, no matter what we do. So if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, please do it today. We don't know the day of our death. We had no control over the day of our birth. We certainly have none over the day of our death. So keep that in mind. Call on Jesus as Lord. Give him your life and he will give you a new heart and a new direction. One more thing and we'll be done. This is a poem on the uh, particular verses that we covered today. This is called The Princess, The Son, and The Sign. God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, even though you've called her it for most of your life. Sarah shall be her name starting now and as time goes by. I will bless her and also by her give you a son. Yes, I will bless her. She shall be the mother of many nations. Kings of people shall come from her and from this one. It will be so forever throughout all generations. Then Abraham laughed as he fell on his face. And as he did, he said in his heart, 
shall a child be born to me here in this place? To a man who is 100, shall this child's life start? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a son to me, O God, just as you've told? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No, Sarah, your wife shall bear a son. It's true. You will call him Isaac. Yes, laughter is his name. I will establish my covenant with him instead of Ishmael. It is an everlasting covenant which will bring me fame and one which will rescue many from the pits of hell. As for Ishmael, I have heard your request and I have blessed him in several ways. He will be fruitful and multiply and so be blessed. He will beget 12 princes. Yes, 12 sons he will raise. But my covenant is with Isaac whom Sarah shall bear next year. It will be at the time I have set. So Abraham have no fear. Then God finished talking with him and so up he went. Then Abraham took Ishmael and all who were born in his home and all who were bought with money. There was no argument. Every male among them was circumcised under the tenth dome. Abraham was 99 when he was circumcised and Ishmael 13. Along with everyone else, it must have been a very ouchy scene. But obedience is what he was called to and obedience is also what God expects of you. Jesus was obedient even to death on a cross and we too should follow him no matter what the cost. When we do, our rewards will be great and nothing can keep us from the blessings of God. Wonderful promises his word does state to those who will someday on heavenly streets trod. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much for the gift of Jesus. Thank you for the symbols and pictures which point to him and how we can have a full and complete understanding of what you are doing and why you're doing it. And above all, thank you for the absolute assurance of our salvation despite our many faults and despite how we just continuously fail you, even after calling on Jesus as Lord, that you will never forget that moment we called on you and we will be saved forever. Thank you for that. Help us to live rightly in your presence, to know your word, to study your word and to love it. And just to tell others about your goodness all the days of our life. Help us to do this, that you will be honored and glorified through it. In these things we pray in the beautiful name of Jesus our Lord. Amen.